137th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal, your guides to the unusual and the strange. And this is episode 46. The episode that Skype tried to ruin because of their damn forced automatic updates. So yeah, um, we're back for episode 46, and we've got really just one area to focus on tonight, and um, we've got a special guest with us tonight, because Rob is entertaining some company from out of town this week, so once again, he is God knows where. So and with it's that, not a sex robot. Let's point that out. <laughs> right. It is not a Roomba with a fleshlight duct taped to the back of it. So, yeah, with that, uh, everybody welcome Corey. Hi, Corey. Hello. Yeah, welcome back. We, um, we've we had a couple requests in the past. One request was for Mr. Corey to come back and record another episode because you were on an episode a long time ago, last year sometime. And I think talk, it's been longer than that. Uh, it may have been. We talked about the Elisa Lamb um, disappearance, I guess you'd call it, the girl that fell into the water well at the Skid Row Hotel, wherever that was. I forget now. On Skid Row? Yeah, there you go. At the Cecil Hotel. <laughs> you, uh, you came on and saved my skin um, a long time ago because everybody else uh, had stuff come up last minute and I had to record by my lonesome. So you uh, – you saved me, and that was a lot of fun, dude. We had a, a lot of people have actually requested that we have you back on the show, and you've been on for a couple of roundtables too, right? Yes, we did. Uh, well, one that was never actually published, and I think there was another one that we did publish. So, <laughs> no, we or maybe uh, we, maybe that was the the uh, O and D podcast we published it. No, we we published the second one too, but because only half of it came through, and it was just a giant audible mess of debauchery i just hacked it on the end of another episode we did <laughs> oh okay yes yeah, so it was in there but it was not as coherent as the first time we tried that but another request we had a while back was for us to talk about the dyatlov pass incident that happened in the soviet union and Corey, have you ever heard much about that are you familiar uh the name itself doesn't ring a bell but uh, awesome. If you start talking about it, I may have heard of it. Yeah, it's it's a pretty familiar tale. You probably have heard about it. So yeah, that's going to be our main focus for the show um, tonight, today, whenever you're listening to this. For us, it's about midnight uh, Tuesday. It's 12 a.m. Tuesday morning, technically, because Skype decided to be a wicked mistress and postpone the recording for an hour and a half. But uh, we prevailed. So yeah, uh, if you don't remember, Corey, we just usually start off with the news. But first... Tell us a bit more about you, dude. Um, you don't quite have, you know, your your quote dick in the peanut butter like the rest of us here, because we all <laughs> <laughs> that means you're fucking nuts. Um, we uh, all subscribe to a lot of these notions of you know the potential for ghosts and, and aliens and everything else. What's what's your thought on the paranormal? Um, well, it's it's not really changed since last time on here. I kind of dabbled or mentioned it last time. Uh. But it's long enough ago, so I can I can restate it. It's a uh, very skeptical. Um, I I am a hopeful skeptic. I guess is the, yeah. the closest term. I I want to believe in ghosts and uh, you know the paranormal and stuff. And there there are certain aspects that I think I do believe in, like the possibility of 
you know, extraterrestrials. I think that's that's something that could be completely out there. Now, whether we've actually had contact with him or not, I don't know that's the case. But uh, as far as ghosts and stuff, I don't I don't buy into it yet. Right. I, uh, I want to believe that there is ghosts out there. I want, you know, I want to see something like that myself. I've, after, you know, listening to you guys for however long it's been now, I've done ghost tours and read some stories about ghosts. And I do find the subject matter entertaining and if it were real, I, I think that'd be phenomenal, uh-huh. but it's, it's, I, I, I just need more solid evidence. You need the proof in the peanut butter first, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There we go. Yep. <laughs> well, that's cool, man. So, I mean, what about like Bigfoot? You think there's a big hairy man beast out in the woods still to this day? Uh, to this day, possibly not, but I definitely think that there could have been, you know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah. Even more, maybe even more recently, like the, you know, 1800s or whatnot, when the the Americas weren't as explored as they are now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. What did you, uh, you think of your ghost tours when you took those ghost tours? Um, so recently I took, uh, uh, I, you know, in Kansas, and I, I live around the Fort Riley area. So we, we went for Halloween. Fort Riley always does the the just the military based ghost tours um it's it's done by a shoot i don't remember the name of the organization that does it but uh they uh they do it every year and you can walk around uh where a lot of the hauntings happened mm-hmm. and the, the history is really neat you get to learn a lot about the military base and just kind of the sicknesses that hit fort riley uh, around you know the late 1800s and all that stuff mm-hmm. the the problem the problem with it is it's all voluntary so all these speakers that they have are just people who have the time, um, who live in the, because a lot of it takes place in like some of the older dwellings that are still actually lived in. So right. the people who live in them, like, well, they'll dress up and kind of act the part and just tell, tell personal anecdotes that happen to them in the houses. So, I mean, some people are better speakers than others, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the stories are really cool and some of them, you know, they, they tell a story that is there at least. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to be mean or anything, but like, <laughs> that was a know. really nice way of saying it. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, uh, the cool thing about them though, uh, if you ever get a chance to do it, which unfortunately it's getting harder and harder to get on a military base, but if you right. ever get a chance to do it, um, they sell books. They they have four volumes out, and I think the fifth one's coming out next year. That's what they said, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah. Uh, and I pick I picked up a whole set. Well, actually, my father bought me the whole set for the for my birthday, and uh, um, I, I'm reading the first one. Uh, the first one's it's 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 interesting. It's got a, some interesting stories. It's it's a lot of military background and and early early late 1800s stuff as well. So it's interesting. Um. So overall, on that experience, uh, kind of middle middle of the road uh, right. compared compared to the other one I went to. We, uh, me and my wife, we went to uh, New Mexico, Santa, Santa Fe, right? Yeah, Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, about a year ago, and we did a lot of the Santa Fe ghost tours. Uh, we had this very enthusiastic tour guide who was from the area, knew the area very well, and he's he does it professionally. Like you, you pay him, he takes you and about mm, 10 people and takes you through Santa Fe downtown and he knows his stuff, man. He knew 
like he had pictures of like ghosts he had seen mm-hmm. or like, you know, shadows or whatever you, orbs. I don't, I don't know the lingo. Um, but he, he knew his stuff. He, he was quick witted. He was funny. He very engaging, wanted interaction with everybody. And, you know, he, he likes, he likes when skeptics come on because like I can challenge it and we had banter back and forth. So it was really neat. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that his, I think if you just Google Santa Fe ghost tours, that's his, um, oh, I didn't nice. know we were going to talk about this. Um, so I'm not positive on that. Um, I hate to do a disservice to him because he was so great, but, uh, I'm pretty sure if you just Google Santa Fe ghost tours, it, it, it is his. Corey, I'd like to point out that orbs are people too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's stuff I don't know, man. I, I don't. I don't know how all that works. So, you guys well, are the most education I have for that. <laughs> you poor pitiful fool. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, the, the, like you were saying, the tours are always kind of they, they weigh a lot on the tour guide because you know when I went to Eureka Springs and stayed up at the Crescent um, Hotel, I had a pretty decent time on the tour, but it was one of those where we had the last tour of the night. And the woman doing the tour, I don't think she does tours there anymore. I think she's uh, since moved on. I think she was like a teacher and she did that on her, like her time off, you know, during like winter break and stuff. But we got there and there was like my wife and I and like three elderly people, probably late 60s, 70s. And when we walk in, she was in, you know, she was dressed the part. And then about two or three minutes into her spiel, she's like, you know what? This is the last tour of the night. I've got nothing else going on. And she kind of let her hair down literally, and then kind of like got more comfortable. And so we took like a really deep dive tour of the Crescent and it was a lot of fun because it was a lot of history and a lot of ghost stories, but like we kind of got the extended cut tour, which you don't normally get. And so that was a hell of a lot of fun, but I don't, Preston, did you have a really good tour when you went there? No. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, the the reason why is because like I've gone out and like I've done this stuff Right. And so, you, you know, the longer that you do these things and you kind of kind of test this, test that, like, oh, this is bullshit, this doesn't work, then, you know, when you, you take it from a serious aspect and then you watch somebody else doing it from maybe a not serious aspect, more like of entertainment, yeah, that you can kind of call out the bullshit a lot easier um, because, you know, I'm Mr. Serious Pants over here. And then you have somebody who's just talking out of their ass and you're just like, dude, that's bullshit. That's not, no, you don't do it like that. Um, so for me, yeah, I didn't have fun on the tours cause I'm just like, Hey, let's just go to our room. And that's what we did. We just <laughs> left in the middle of the tour and went to our room. So, yeah. Yeah. And we went back a second time. And like you said, Corey, when you had the really enthusiastic tour guide, um, uh, we had these two guys and again, I can't think of their names. Um, Bill and Ted. So that's kind of, Oh, you, one, uh, we went to not the, uh, we didn't go to the Crescent the second time. We went to the Basin, which is kind of at like the base of the town because the town's kind of built up on a mountain. And so we had a dude named, uh, a guy named Charlie and another guy, and I can't think of his name now. It's escaping me, but yeah, they were just like, I mean, so enthusiastic and, you know, playing the part really well, but very open to like people challenging them and stuff like that. And it made all the difference in the world because even though nothing spooky really happened, um, they made it a hell of a lot of fun just to go because they were entertaining themselves. So we had a pretty good time. And I will say just kind of to 
tack on to that. Just even if you aren't into like ghost hunting, ghost paranormal things in general, uh, it, it it's a good lesson on uh, just the history of where you might be at. So like if you're going on a vacation somewhere, I mean, it's a good way to learn a little bit of history on the town. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that, that in itself can be cool because I used, you know, when I go on ghost tours, I could really give two shits less about the history. I just want to see some ghosts. But depending on the tour guide, I, you know, I left Eureka Springs a second go through, especially. Um, I really learned a lot and paid attention because there's all sorts of like, you know, tomfoolery and dastardly things with like moonshining and um, rum running and stuff like that that I thought was pretty cool. So. You you can really learn a lot of cool stuff if you pay attention. And if if the second time you go through one, you realize you're probably not going to see a ghost, that gives you the chance, I think, to pay more attention to it and, and actually care a little bit more about the history. So, And if you're like me and you have too many shots of the free whiskey, at the end of the tour, your tour guide will think that you're being possessed because you keep burping and having to adjust yourself in your chair. <laughs> it was pretty great. I think I told the story before, but yeah, we were towards the very end of the tour and I kept like burping and Shayla goes, are you, are you okay? And because I mean, I was getting pretty buzzed off of the shots I had and the tour guide stops and he's like, can you explain what you're feeling? Do you feel like somebody else? Are your thoughts not your own? And I'm like, no, I think I'm just getting drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole room had a pretty good laugh and he's like, well, then in truth you are quote feeling the spirits. And then we all had an even bigger laugh and then, we were done, so. Well, hell, with that um, awesome introduction, we normally start off with some news. So, Preston, why don't you hit us with some news? So, the age-old question throughout time is, what came first, the chicken or the egg? But here in December, we're going to change it up. And the new question is going to be, what came first, the beer or the human? Ooh. If the planet is Mars, the answer may be the beer, at least if the most famous name in brews has its way. Budweiser is solidifying its position as leader of the space suds race by sending barley to the International Space Station in December to study the effects of microgravity on beer ingredients so that the first partakers of the red planet Pilsner won't have to worry about the head being on the bottom rather than at the top of the glass. <laughs> That's clever. And this is not one of those, you know, past history of frogs, bikini babes, and ex-jocks, you know, hawking their hops. This is not a marketing ploy. Budweiser is being dead serious. Um, they are teaming up with organizations such as Center for the Advancement of Science. And on December 4th, on the upcoming SpaceX CRS-13 cargo supply mission with Elon Musk, they are shipping up supplies so they can begin testing. Huh. Yeah. You know, the shitty part about that whole thing is they're just going to be brewing Budweiser. Yeah, that you know, that's that's true. And then also, you know, uh, you, you got to think, like, how is the yeast and all that going to be affected by, um, you know, by Mars and the planetary conditions? So if this actually works, like... I mean, it's yes, it's going to be Budweiser, but it's going to be a different. But it might be better. Like Ooh. Budweiser might leave Earth and go to Mars, and finally be the beer that we all hoped and wanted it to be. <laughs> That's true. Or this is the opening origin story of how um, the Alien movies really started. Yeah, technically, isn't yeast a living organism? 
It is, yeah. Yeah, so we are maybe contaminating another planet with a foreign organism. It'll be the yeast infection. (laughs) 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 Oh, Oh, that's fantastic. But yeah, you know, maybe yeast is a tiny little, you know, almost microscopic creature because of the gravity on Earth. And if you were to expose yeast to a, you know, gravity-free environment, maybe it blows up and becomes like these giant yeasty bacterial blobs that eat everybody. Maybe that's how we got the Black Plague. Like, you know, interstellar yeast through, you know, came down and some type of comet and that's how we got the plague. Oh, yeah. Well, and the cool thing is, too, like they're going to brew beer in space, but I don't really think you can get the beer back to Earth. So I don't think we're going to have a Mars Pilsner. Yeah. And then, you know, you figure if they can, uh, you know, get all the supplies to Mars and the little robotic arm plants all the barley and all the supplies, then it's really nobody's going to do anything with it until we get there and colonize it. Yeah. But, I mean, hey, for science. Yeah, for science. Yeah. That's maybe the one good thing that Budweiser is going to do because their beer is terrible. (laughs) Mm. Well, what else you got besides uh, interstellar beer? So... There was recently a Flat Earth International Conference, and a amateur rocket scientist <clears throat> is, well, was, about to launch the first homemade steam-powered craft into space so that he could prove once and for all that the Earth is really flat. Uh-huh. Because he was going to take pictures after he shot himself into the upper atmosphere and then hopefully, you know, land back down safe and sound. And uh, this is the quote from amateur rocket scientist Mike Hughes. It'll shut the door on this ball earth. I don't believe in science. I know about aerodynamics and fluid dynamics and how things move through air. But the certain size of rocket nozzles and thrust, that's not science. That's just formula. There's no difference between science and science fiction. And <laughs> what a dork. Yeah, well, according to the people in Snake Canyon, he didn't have all the proper permits to send his rocket into the upper atmosphere. So he got denied earlier this month and was unable to fire his rocket. Oh. Yeah, Mr. Hughes, also known as Mad Mike, also claimed uh, that uh, he uh, believes that the flat earth or the non-flat earth is conspiracies from uh, the Masons. And that uh, the Masons are trying to control everything, Ah. including NASA. Well, what are your thoughts, Preston? Well, of course the Earth is round, silly. There is no such thing as a flat pancake Earth. (laughs) NASA and the Masons wouldn't lie to us. (laughs) Corey, what do you think, dude? Is is there a flat Earth or is it round? I don't know. Governments try to hide things a lot, so, I mean... Maybe it is flat and they're just letting the man not do his work so yeah. he can't figure this out. Oh. And Mad Mike Ray's, get this, over $8,000 through GoFundMe. So, I mean, there's <laughs> enough people out there like, yeah, this fucking guy, we're going to give him money. But I think the government shut him down because they knew he'd kill himself with a rocket that only cost $8,000. Yeah, a steam-powered right. rocket. Okay, steam-powered rocket. Probably not even get like... 100 feet off the ground and explode and kill everybody in the crowd. I think that they should let him do it. 
I think so, yeah. I mean, yeah. if he's if he's this determined to try and prove that the earth is flat, I think we should try and let him do it. And then, A, he's not successful and he somehow kills himself. Yeah. Or B, he is successful and then we have a real answer. Yeah. yeah. There you go. I mean, make him sign a waiver like everything else in this world. Sign a waiver that says, you know, nobody's liable but you. And Godspeed, man. Oh, yeah. This was his other quote. John Glenn and Neil Armstrong, Freemasons. Once you understand that, you understand the roots of deception. No, oh, it all makes sense. Yeah. Were they actually? No. <laughs> <laughs> Preston wouldn't tell us even if they were. He's one of yeah. them. Yeah. Oh, man. Preston, how many signatures did you have to get on your guys' uh, you know, pamphlets to shut him down when you guys sabotaged his operation? Oh, no, we, can, we control the world, so we don't have to have any signatures. We're just like, <laughs> let's do it, guys. <laughs> You make a phone call on the red phone and it's all signed and done, huh? Yeah. We still have Elvis. Shh. Oh, yeah. Make a note here real quick. I'm, I'm decoding all your secrets because you've already told us there is a red phone and you do have an Elvis. And the earth is flat. You, heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you ever go down that rabbit hole and I'm saying here first, I'm pretty certain the earth is round. I'm not disputing that. If you ever have time, like really dig deep and go down that rabbit hole of flat earthers and the flat versus round earth. They have some pretty interesting arguments. I'm not going to say good arguments, but they have some interesting points of view they're coming at, which kind of cloud the waters as far as it being a yes or no answer. So it's pretty interesting to look at, even if you are dead set on one way or the other, it's fun. Go down that rabbit hole one day. I mean, you'll hurt your head on some of it, but I mean, that's okay. We're not yeah. here to judge. Yeah. What What can you do? Um, speaking of Elvis real quick and conspiracies, are you guys um, privy to the idea that Elvis's twin never died at birth? And secretly, when Elvis decided he didn't want to be a performer anymore, uh, they killed his twin brother who was hiding out this whole time. And Elvis really is real. And he's just, you know, doing his thing, drinking whiskey and probably studying flat earth conspiracies <laughs> <laughs> i did not know that yeah that's one of my favorite lesser known lesser talked about conspiracies is that uh his twin brother was the one who died on the crapper and he actually I mean, escaped kind of like bubba I like, I like to think that uh you know the aliens took him and he's floating in outer space and you know having a good old time yeah maybe a little less conversation <laughs> we ought to do i want to do an episode sometime on um conspiracies of you know people dying and doppelgangers and stuff like that i almost flipped a script and brought a bunch of those to the table but i should probably do some more research to do that topic some justice yeah yeah you've hinted at it a couple times i remember an episode about the beatles that you guys did yeah old billy i forget his last name but yeah um Billy, uh, God damn it. Uh, Billy Cheers. Uh, Billy Shear. Shears. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Old Paul McCartney's double. Yep. It's, it's, it's interesting. Like I said, it's like, it's just like flat earth. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing to look at and just read. Even if you don't want to believe any of it, just read and, and learn where these people are coming from and these cockamamie ideas. And I don't know. Oh, my dog's going nuts right now in the background. 
Okay, so as requested um, a long time ago, long enough I forgot when, we're going to talk about the Dyatlov Pass incident. And if I'm mispronouncing that, I am terribly sorry. It is spelled D-Y-A-T-O-L-V. And I'm pretty certain it's the Dyatlov Pass. Yeah, I mean, if you had a Russian accent, it'd sound a little bit different, but we're going to go with it. Yeah, I won't. I won't uh, berate people with a shitty Russian accent because <laughs> <laughs> nothing I hate more than racism and shitty accents. The Dyatlov Pass incident happened in 1958 in the Soviet Union. A group of experienced hikers and skiers came together, all students or peers from the Ural Polytechnical Institute in the Soviet Union. And the idea is that these 10 people would do a trekking expedition across the northern Urals in Sverdlovsk Oblast, located in the Soviet Union. The group of these 10 skiers was headed by Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student from the UPI, or Ural Polytechnical Institute, and the other nine consisted of fellow students and peers from the university. Each member of the group, which consisted of eight men and ten women, were all grade two experienced hikers. And I believe that back then in the 50s, um, you had like three grades of, you know, experienced hikers, grades one, two, and three. So grade twos were not quite, they weren't quite experts, but they were very versed in, you know, what to do and, and how to survive. So they were all experienced grade two hikers with plenty of ski tour experience and were making this venture to receive their grade three certification upon the return. And like I said before, at the time, grade three was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union, um, and it required you to traverse 300 kilometers or 190 miles. The goal of the expedition was to reach the Otorten, which was a route noted to be a category three trek being the most difficult. So basically, you had a bunch of level tours trying to do a level three course. The group arrived by train at Ivdel, which was a city at the center of the northern province of Sverdlovsk Oblast, and they arrived early morning around uh, the beginning hours of January 25th. They took a truck to Vizhai, which was the northernmost village in the establishment, being the last inhabited settlement to the north just before their trek. While spending the night in Vizhai, the skiers dined on loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up before the following day's hike, uh, basically to kind of carb load for this big expedition they were going to be doing. On January 27th, they began the first part of the trek toward the Orton, the Orton, a Torten. How would you pronounce O T O R T E N? O Torten? Yeah, we're going to go with it. The O Torten. O Torten. On January 27th, they began their first part of their trek towards the O Torten from Vizhai. On January 28th, one of the members, Yuri Yudin, who suffered from several health ailments, including rheumatism and congenital heart defects, was forced to turn back from the trek early due to his knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. So the remaining group, these nine people, who continued the trek became our ill-fated explorers. Now, we know pretty much their journey up to this point. What happens next is pretty much put together, A, 
from their diaries and their cameras and pictures found at the campsite, and B, what happened for the rescue teams afterwards. Through various diaries and cameras found around their last campsite, details of their journey were documented and then put together to track the group's route up to the very last day before the incident. On January 31st, the group had arrived at the edge of the highland area and began to prepare climbing. In a wooded valley at the base of the mountain, they gathered up extra food and equipment they'd be using for their trip back. The next day, February 1st, the hikers started moving through the pass. So basically, February 1st, they began their ascent. From what we can tell, it seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. But because of worsening weather conditions, i.e. some snowstorms, whiteout conditions, and decreased visibility, they began to lose their direction and deviated far west, up towards the top of the Colot Seichel, which I guess is another region of this mountain. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to stop and set up camp there on the slope of the mountain. Instead, however, of moving about one and a half kilometers, roughly a mile, downhill to a forested area which would have offered some better shelter from the elements and the blizzard. At this point, experts believe that Dyatlov either didn't want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on a mountain slope for better experience. So, whatever happened, they decided to set up camp for the night on the side of this mountain, and this, unfortunately, is where our hikers meet their doom. So, before leaving and beginning their, their journey, Dyatlov had agreed that he would set up a telegram of their trip to a sports club that they were leaving from as soon as they returned to Vizhai. They expected this would happen probably no later than the 12th of February, but... Dyatlov told Yudin, the guy who had to leave because of his health problems, before his departure from the group, he expected this might take a little longer because they were making a lot slower progress already than he had hoped. When February 12th passed, no message had been received, and there was no immediate reaction because of the delays, because this happens a lot. Whenever you go on a long journey, a long hike, or a mountain climb, it's not uncommon to be a few days early or a few days late because of unforeseen delays. So days went by, days became weeks, and after a while, people started getting pretty nervous because there was no sign or message from the trekkers. On February 20th, relatives of the travelers demanded a rescue operation to search for the missing hikers. So then, the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students, teachers, and other authorities, set out. And to make a long story even shorter, later the army and military forces became involved with planes and helicopters being ordered in to join the rescue operation. On February 26th, nearly one month after the hikers set out on their journey, searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on the Kolotskiev part of the mountain. So basically where they set up their camp on the side of this mountain on the slope. Now, this is where things get kind of strange. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Sherevin, the student who actually found their tent, said, quote, The tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. So what he means there is there's nobody inside of it, but it was full of all their stuff. Inside the tent, everything had been intact. Warm clothes were found, waterproof jackets, blankets, 
sweaters, everything that could have been essential to their survival in the Siberian weather, was left in the tent. Plus, their cameras, their diaries, and cooking utensils, all apparently abandoned in the moment of madness that may have ensued. Investigators said what's strange is the tent had been cut from the inside. Eight or nine sets of footprints, left by people who had been wearing only socks, a single shoe, or even barefoot, could be followed leading down toward the edge of the nearby wooded area on the opposite side of the pass. About one and a half kilometers, roughly a mile, from the northeast. However, 500 meters, 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered with snow. At the forest edge, under a large cedar tree, the searchers found the visible remains of a small attempt of a fire, along with the first two bodies, those of people's names I can't pronounce, Krivenshenko and Dorenshenko. Both bodies were shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. So these dudes are out in the Siberian wilderness in their underwear. Make that noted. The branches on the tree they were found near were also broken about five meters high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed to look up for something, maybe their camp, or maybe they were trying to climb to get away from something chasing them. Between the cedar and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses. Dyatlov, Kolmogorva, and Slobodin who seemed to have had died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to their tent. They were found separately at distances of 300 kilometers, 480 kilometers, and roughly 630, I'm sorry, meters, 300, 480, and 630 meters away from that tree. So they all took off probably about the same time in the same direction, although certain people made it farther than the others. The search for the last four hikers, however, took a heck of a lot longer. The last four they were looking for were finally found on May 4th, underneath four meters of snow, roughly 10 to 15 feet, in a ravine that was 75 meters farther into the woods from the cedar tree. These four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that those who had died first had apparently relinquished their clothes to the others. Zola Turov was wearing... Dubanina's fox <laughs> faux fur coat and hat, while Dubanina's foot was wrapped in a piece of another guy's wool trousers. So, so far it kind of seems like whatever caused them to jump out of their tent made them all take off in roughly the same direction, although some made it farther than others. So, with all this kind of weird stuff and weird circumstances coming to light... Legal orders were given immediately after finding the first five bodies for medical examinations to be performed. A medical exam found no injuries which might have led to their deaths, and it was eventually concluded that they had all died of hypothermia. Slobodin, or Slobodnin, had a small crack in his skull, but early on it was ruled to be not a fatal wound. But here's where shit gets bizarre. An examination of the four bodies which were found in May shifted our narrative as to what could have occurred during the incident. Three of the ski hikers had fatal injuries. One had major skull damage. The other two had major chest fractures. But according to Dr. Boris, last name I can't pronounce, the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high. He compared the damage done to their chests 
equal to the force required from a car crash, not the blow of a living man. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds, however, around the fractured bones. It was as if they had been subjected to high levels of pressure without anything physically striking their chests. However, major external injuries were found in Dubinia, or Dubinina, who was missing her tongue, her eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of bone. She had extensive skin maceration on her hands. So, what do you guys think could have done that? Aliens. <laughs> I knew you'd say aliens. Corks, what do you think? Well, I suppose the logical conclusion would be some sort of like yeti creature. Okay, so predation of some larger creature, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So polar bears. There you go. Right, wolves. Maybe. Maybe a pack of wolves came and just chewed out the soft bits. Well, that wouldn't explain the crushing of the rib cage. Uh Ah, right, right, right. Okay. So she was found with skin macerations on both of her hands. They claim that Dubinina was found lying face down in a small stream that ran under the snow and that her external injuries were in line with putrefaction under a wet environment and were unlikely related to her death. So they're saying because her hands were all putrefied and her eyeballs and her lips and stuff were rotted out, it could have just been because she was submerged underwater for a high amount of era, for a long amount of time. There was initial speculation that the indigenous Manzi people may have attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their sacred land, but an investigation indicated that the nature of the deaths did not support this hypothesis. The hikers' footprints alone were visible, but they showed no sign of hand-to-hand struggle or the footprints of any people or other animals. Like I mentioned before, some of them had only one shoe, while others had no shoes or just socks. Some were found wrapped in snips and rips of other people's clothes that had been seemingly cut from other people's bodies who had died already. A journalist reporting on the incident from the available inquiries filed a claim that stated, Six of the group members died due to hypothermia, three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby, apart from the nine travelers. The tent, oddly enough, had been ripped open from within. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces of the camp showed that all the group members left the campsite on their own accord on foot. Nobody was dragged. Nobody was forcibly removed, let's say. To dispel the theory of an attack on the indigenous Manzi people, Dr. Boris, last name unpronounceable, stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by another human being because, again, the force of the blows had been too strong, with no soft tissue damage to be done by a mere man. But local tribesmen were also known to be peaceful people. The Manzies weren't really a dangerous or violent type, and there was no track evidence of anybody approaching the tent from any direction. Um, Oddly enough, no documents ever had any information about the internal organs of the skiers, and there were no survivors of the incident. So with all this so far, at the time of the verdict, it was basically the members have all died because of compelling natural forces. The investigation officially ceased in May of 1959, shortly after the last four bodies were discovered, as the result of the absence of a guilty party. 
Now, here's what gets kind of strange, even more so. The files were sent to a secret archive, and photocopies of the case became available only in the 1990s, so some 30 years after the event took place, although some parts were redacted or, quote, missing. So, let's get even more spooky from here, shall we? It's noted that a 12-year-old Yuri Kuncevich, jokes too easy, stay away from it, who later became the head of the Dyatlov Foundation. So the Dyatlov Pass was famously named after the leader of this trek. That's why we call it the Dyatlov Pass. This kid attended five of the hikers' funerals, and he recalled that their skin had been a deep brown, almost tanned, not quite charred, but definitely too dark for your normal, you know, Siberian or um, Soviet Union uh, person. Another group of hikers, about 50 kilometers south of this incident, reported that the same evening as the initial incident, they saw strange orange spheres in the night sky north on the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in Evedel and adjacent areas continually throughout the period from February to March of 1959 by various independent witnesses, including the Meteorology Service and the military. <laughs> so what do you guys think could have caused this? Let's talk about this real quick, and I'll go into a couple of different uh, ideas of what maybe uh, happened to them. What do you think? we got orange spheres, chest uh, injuries that can't be explained, and somebody's missing their eyeballs and their tongue and their lips. I mean, what are we thinking? Obviously, they got attacked by aliens and yetis, and the case is closed, right? Um, I, knowing all the information <laughs> over the years that I know about this, uh, so this is like at the height of the Cold War, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And with Operation Paperclip, like, we got all the good Nazis. Like, we got the ones that were working on flying saucers. We got the ones that were working on, like, different chemical warfares. And the Russians were like, shit, we got to get some Nazis, too. And so my belief is, you know, this whole incident was the, the, the Russian government, you know, with the Nazi scientists that they had, mm -hmm. they were working on different weapons um, in case, uh, you know, America decided to do something. And one of these experiments went wrong and uh, wiped out these people. Ah, good old Soviet government experiments gone awry. Da. Da. Corey, what do you think? Uh, you know, I don't I don't know on this one. I mean part of me says like the reason they left the tents in such a panic is mm -hmm. maybe uh what's that word called where you just start going crazy in, in hysteria? Like, Mass hysteria? Yeah. Yeah, like a cabin fever kind of thing. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. I will get into that. In the, yeah, we'll get into that because I've got some uh, some information about what could have happened relating to that. Awesome. But that doesn't explain, you know, the weird bodily injuries. That yeah. explains just them leaving in a panic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So the first obvious thing I thought of was avalanche. Right? That explains everything. The theory is that an avalanche caused the hikers' deaths, while initially popular, this theory has been questioned and may be proven wrong. But, let's see what author Benjamin Redford says about the incident. He says, An avalanche. The group woke up in a panic. 
They cut their way out of the tent because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared of an avalanche being imminent. It's better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive by utter tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to safety of a nearby wooded area where trees could have helped slow the oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands. Oh, that was another thing. Some of the bodies had burned hands. Sorry, I left that part out. While the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing, since the danger had apparently passed. But it was too cold, and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, their clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the four bodies who were found severely damaged were caught in an obvious avalanche and buried under four meters, about 13 feet of snow. This easily tells you what happened to their chest. Giant hardened ice blocks or snow could have crushed their chests without leaving any kind of lacerations. And then Dubanina's tongue most likely had been removed post-mortem by scavengers or ordinary um, predation. So, case closed, right? Avalanche. Easy enough. But, like I said earlier, evidence contradicting the avalanche include the following. The location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. The tent was covered in snow, yes, from a blizzard, but not an avalanche. Also, the snow accumulation on the ground nearby in the area they were found was not above normal. An avalanche would have left certain patterns of debris and distributed over wide areas. The bodies found within 10 days of the event were covered with very shallow layers of snow, and it had been, had there been an avalanche sufficient strength enough to sweep away a second party, these bodies too would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line as well. Plus, over a hundred expeditions to the region were held since the incident, and nobody ever reported conditions that may have spooked them or led them to believe an avalanche had been created. Um, blah, 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 science, blah, blah. Dyatlov, with an experienced skier and a much older Alexander Zolotrov, was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of these men in their experience would have ever dared to camp anywhere where an avalanche could have possibly started. Another idea suggests that maybe high winds had blown one member away and the others attempted to go rescue that person. But a large experienced group like that would not have behaved in such a way. The winds strong enough to blow a man away with such force should have also taken away the tent and their belongings. So maybe not an avalanche. I was thinking avalanche because it just made sense, but then they say the snow and the environment was just pretty much, you know, left to look normal. So that's what they want you to think, Sean. Who, the Masons? No, the government. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> Duh. It yeah. was avalanche. Okay. Easy. <laughs> so cool. Go drink vodka. It'd be okay. Yeah, just get you some vodka. Bring you a gallon of vodka. Ugh. Um, Corey, you mentioned mass hysteria, so we'll jump into that one then. What about good old-fashioned infrasound? Another hypothesis popularized by author Donnie Eicher in his 2013 book, Dead Mountain is that a wind going around the mountain created a phenomenon called a Carmen Vortex Street, which can produce high infrasound frequencies capable of inducing panic 
capable of inter- <laughs> shit fire, capable of inducing panic attacks in humans and animals. According to Iker's theory, the infrasound gen- generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hiker. Eichhart claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave their tent by whatever means necessary due to their panic, and they fled down the slope in just their underwear and their socks. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been just out of the infrasound's path and then would have regained their composure, realizing, holy crap, we are just in our socks and underwear, and it's 22 degrees below zero. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path, blah, blah, blah. But in the darkness, they would have been unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by the three victims were in a result of stumbling over the ledge of a ravine and falling down in the darkness on top of rocks at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So I think, Corey, you're on to something. And then to further escalate the whole idea of, you know, the mass um, hysteria, they add on paradoxical undressing. The International Science Times posted that the hikers' deaths were caused by hypothermia, which, yes, we can all believe that. That's pretty obvious. Hypothermia can induce a behavior known as paradoxical undressing in which the hyperthermic subjects remove their clothes and a response to their nerve endings blowing out false positives, perceiving them to feel like they are burning with warmth. Six out of the nine campers died of hypothermia, and that's undisputed. However, the group appears to have acquired additional clothing from those who have already died, which suggests they were of sound enough mind to try to add layers. However, there's not really any explanation of how the behavior could have hit all nine hikers at the same time. Thus, again, mass um, paranoia or mass hysteria. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. But I think I've got two, two ideas here that I think are probably the likely cause. First of all, guys, it was a good old-fashioned orgy. <laughs> huh? Oh, my God. Okay. I like where you're going with this. Uh-huh. Another argument possibly related to a romantic encounter that left some of them only partially clothed is the real reason why they were led to a violent dispute, thus a violent end. Iker states that it's highly plausible. From all the indications, the group was largely harmonious and sexual tension was confined to a platonic flirtation and crushes. There were no drugs present, only alcohol in a small flask of a medical alcohol container, which was found intact at the scene. The group had even sworn off cigarettes for the expedition. Furthermore, a fight could not have left a massive injury like that on one body or another. But, I don't know. I think that could have been the likely story. Maybe one of these two young ladies had four or five suitors that finally just had enough, and they all three are walking around with rock-hard boners and decided just to have a, you know, a fisticuff. <laughs> and they just, you know, erupted out of the tent in the mad fury of flying fists and um, phalluses, and then, boom, they all just, you know, froze to death. Um, another idea is that maybe, just maybe, Collateral damage is what they were after a mass escape of a criminal thug camp unit a few meters away from the camp in the area. This was supposedly foiled by the KGB using missiles loaded with nerve gas and vacuum bombs that sucked out the oxygen of the air, perhaps explaining 
the internal injuries suffered from the hikers. So what this is all saying, guys, is while they were having a good old-fashioned nine-person orgy, a prison camp nearby had a prisoner escape, and as they ran past his orgy tent, the government shot missiles, which gave him nerve gas and vacuum air-sucking bombs and caused them all to die mid-coitus. That sucks. What a way to go, right? <laughs> huh, I think that that's uh, – I don't know if that's accurate, Sean. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, let me give you something else that may be a bit more likely to have happened. How many theories are on this thing? Oh, buddy, it's been 40 years, hell, 50 years now, so there's a shit ton. But for you and the fellow listeners, we're nearing our end. Um, I think, guys, it could have been a good old-fashioned cryptozoological encounter – by none other than our friend, the Russian Yeti. Dun, dun, dun. Question. Yeah? Is the Russian Yeti different than any other Yeti? He is. And, yes. And do you want to know why? Okay. Because he's not called a Yeti. He's called a mink. And that's why he's different. Huh. <laughs> yeah. No, so not to go all Bigfoot geek on you here, but every region of the world has their their Bigfoot. And what we know here in North America is usually Bigfoot or the skunk ape or the whatever. Insert, you know, name here. But they're always famously brown because they have adapted and evolved into a um, a color or a fur color to mimic their surroundings. So North America is primarily forest area, you know, mud, swamps, that kind of stuff. So our Bigfoots are normally kind of a uh, – Strawberry blonde to almost black in nature, depending where they're at, to blend in. So your Yeti, which is pretty similar to a Bigfoot quarry, just to save you the long-winded explanation, they're primarily going to be light brown or gray or even white to blend in with their surroundings. So essentially, I mean, it could have been, you know, a, a white Bigfoot, albino Bigfoot maybe. But I don't really have much more evidence about a Yeti other than it just sounds really freaking cool. And that's what we all hope it really was. And they described that, you know, Bigfoots and Yetis are famously, supposedly uber strong, which explains why, you know, if they heard a good old fashioned mink crawling up the side of the mountain, they could have scared them shitless. And they all just jumped out of that tent and took off a running. And then maybe just maybe... The Yeti got a hold of a couple of them, gave him a good old-fashioned backhand or maybe a Sparta kick to the chest and just crushed their chests with one foul blow. Which explains why old boy's trying to climb that tree and he, you know, broke off branches about five meters up was because he was trying to maybe climb a tree and get away. Not realizing that a Yeti could probably, you know, uproot the tree and swing that guy like a Louisville slugger. But that's just my thought. And um, it could have also, instead of a Yeti, it could have been something else we don't talk about much. Zolotea Baba, or the Golden Woman of the Ural Mountains. And there is a legend that the Zolotea Baba was a golden goddess witch who hunted the mountains in search of people trying to plunder her cave full of unspeakable riches. Oh, see, that sounds more feasible right there. Right. The golden goddess witch of the mountain. I think that's a lot more plausible than a Yeti or ultrasounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, I mean, furthermore, there go into ideas that maybe it was a Wendigo, which was a mountain spirit, kind of like a half ghost, half Yeti. 
of some, you know, poor cursed Indian guy, but we don't have to get into that. But yeah, there are farther fetched ideas here that either a Yeti or a witch or a Wendigo maybe went after them. And the howls of a Wendigo are, you know, noted to be similar to a Banshee, which causes people to go mad with fear. And uh, maybe that's why they were drawn out of their tent. But uh, there you go. I uh, I think the ultimate answer here, the last idea we might have is military testing. I think that you guys are on the right path there in thinking that it was some good old-fashioned military cover-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So the Soviet Union, Soviet government says that during this time, conveniently, just like Roswell, they were testing some new tech because, you know, we were right in the middle of the Cold War and all that kind of stuff was going on. So the Soviet military was testing this brand new tech they like to call parachute mines. And basically, you launch a bunch of mines from a parachute, and they would detonate a meter or two before they hit the ground to produce a rain of hellfire and shrapnel, which produced similar damage patterns to those experienced by the hikers. Heavy internal damage with very little external trauma. Basically, these are kind of like percussion grenades in a way, too. So if one went off and you didn't get hit by the shrapnel, it would definitely, you know, be like you got hit by a car without any severe, you know, physical trauma. Just broken bones, i.e. like getting hit by a car. So the problem I have with this one is that wouldn't you see... Debris knocked around, trees down, and stuff uh-huh. like that. Right. Right, right, right. Now Corey's unscrewing that peanut butter, isn't he? Yeah, you're taking the lid off. I like that. He's he's taking the lid off, but he's forgetting something here. Just like Roswell, you, you know, you, you can use things like that as a scapegoat because, like, uh, you know, uh, we, we talked about how – you know, for the government, it was easier to let people believe it was aliens mm-hmm. when, in fact, it was them experimenting with midgets and <laughs> you, you know, you know, hot air balloons. So it is easier to say it is something as simple as yes, we were testing, and it was just a you know parachute bomb mm-hmm. because then yeah, I mean, we can admit that we did something, but we don't have to tell you what we really did. We just gave you some bullshit answer, and uh, you know, Bob's your uncle's good enough. There you go. Yeah, so parachute mines and um, mines being detonated in midair could explain the glowing orbs reported in the night sky in that general vicinity. But nobody really said they heard any, you know, loud noises. They just saw strange aerial phenomenon. So was this indeed a military cover-up? People believe. People believe after reviewing and studying the pictures of the campsite the bodies were actually moved into unnatural-looking poses. Photos of the tent show that it was apparently erect incorrectly, something that an experienced hiker would not normally have done. This theory, in particular, when speculating on radiological weapons also, is partly based on the findings of radioactivity on some of the clothing as well as the bodies of some of the hikers. That would explain why they had that tannish orange skin and even some of the hair had gone gray. However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all of the hikers, not just some. So they also say that because of the darkening of the skin and the lightening of the hair, it could have just been natural mummification taking place after three or four months of being exposed to cold and winds. 
And um, Preston, you were saying what? Some of the bodies were were buried in lead coffins? Um, Yeah, lead and zinc coffins. Um, So a couple of the hikers, um, the, you know, the families were like, uh, you know, we want to properly bury our our sons and daughters. And the Russian government um, said, you know, you can't have the bodies back. There was a big stink about it. And so finally, one of the families was able to locate where the body was. And when they found it, it was actually buried and lined in a a zinc and lead coffin, which typically when you do something like that is because you're trying to keep out um, radiation poisoning. Mm -hmm. So something like the the Russian government was afraid by the look of these bodies that there was going to be radiation contamination. Mm -hmm. So they uh, buried them in these special coffins so that they wouldn't have to worry about that getting out. Or if it was some type of chemical warfare, like they were trying to test some type of chemical weapon, they didn't want that spreading. So they, you know, buried the bodies in these specially, you know, designed coffins to help contaminate whatever or, you know, keep in whatever that contamination was. Right, right. So potentially a military cover up of some kind, but maybe not malicious. Whoops a daisy, guys. We didn't know there was going to be hikers in the area, and well, we didn't realize that we were going to fuck shit up. So uh, let's come up with a story, okay? It was Yetis and a golden witch in the mountains, <laughs> right? See, but I mean that's a good point. That's the final closing statement here. The most plausible thing I can think of, without going on the air of you know aliens and and Yetis and and golden witches, would be military testing, military weapons. But the argument against that in closing is that if you're doing government tests, why would you choose a mountain that is almost unclimbable? Because a level three mountain climb is probably, you know, beyond expert level. So this is the 50-50 argument. Why would you waste your time on doing any experiment up there when it's, you know, borderline impossible to go up there and get the results back? Well, I mean, they had – vehicles that could get up there, right? This was what, the 1950s? Mm -hmm. It was the 50s, but it was more of a climbing expedition because of the sheer mountainsides. You pretty much had to hike it and climb it versus just driving like an ATV up the side of it. Yeah, but I mean, they had helicopters and stuff. You could fly a helicopter up there, right? True. Very true. Launch a couple of your military secret weapons off the back of the helicopter. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just see what happens. Right. And then, you know, the other thing, too, is if they figure that, you know, most people aren't going to be able to climb this mountain or be up there, then maybe it's a safe spot to test these weapons just to see, <laughs> right. you know, whatever's going on. Like, eh, we're not going to kill anybody because nobody's going to be up there. And then, yeah. oh, shit. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's okay place to do it, Sergey, because we all know there's not going to be, you know, like a tent full of 10 people up there camping out or anything. <laughs> and then they launch all the mines and, you know, kill 10 people, nine people. Yeah, I don't know. I think the biggest argument that you brought up, Corey, which is mine, that kind of lingers in the back of my mind against, you know, military weapons testing, they didn't notice any kind of like, you know, parachutes or, you know, craters from the mines or shrapnel. There was no real evidence of what the hell could have happened up there. But I don't know. The the burning question is why were the bodies, some of the bodies buried in, you know, lead and zinc lined coffins? I'm not saying it was aliens, but I'm saying it's aliens. I'm not saying it was aliens, but I'm saying it was midgets and hot air balloons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, there you go. That was uh, that's one of my favorite unanswered, you know, I, I don't want to call it a murder, but uh, I don't know. 
one of my favorite stories there because there's so many avenues you can go down and there's not really one answer that, you know, disproves the rest. Yeah. Well, does anybody else have anything else to talk about? I brought something. Do it. All right, Corey. Slap well, us in the face with us, Corey. Yeah. Hit us with that peanut butter stick. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right, Corey. You brought something to the table you wanted to discuss, so let's uh let's bring that up. Okay. So you mentioned you have maybe talked about this in the past, so mm-hmm. I may be retreading some grounds, but it it coincidentally relates in the sense that it's just an unsolved mystery and uh it's it's clear that this case is a murder. I'm talking about the Hinter Kaifect murders. Ah. Uh-huh. Um if you if you don't know what they are, let's dive into it. Yeah. Uh, so the Hinterkaifeck, it was a small farmstead um, that was about 40 miles of, uh, north of Munich in Germany. Mm-hmm. So a uh, small farm, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And this happened in uh, March 31st of 1922. So, you know, almost 100 years ago. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, So it was a family living on the farm, a family of five, and then they had a maid. So you have the father, Andre Gruber. You have his wife, Cecilia, I think is how you say that name. Mm -hmm. Um, You have their daughter, Victoria, and she is a widowed. uh, So her husband had passed away, I believe, in war, if I read correctly. Okay. Uh, uh-huh. And she's 35. You have her two children, one who's seven, named Cecilia, I'm assuming after her mother. Uh, and then another Cecilia one, Cecilia Jr. Yeah. So then also you have the maid, uh, Maria Bromingartner. Bromingartner, I think is how you say that. Uh-huh. Uh, she's 45, 44, 45, somewhere around there. Um, so remote farm, middle of nowhere. Uh, close enough to have neighbors, though. That apparently, the neighbors talked regularly. Okay. So, like down uh, the road neighbors. That's kind of what I'm getting at. It doesn't really say. Um, and based on the pictures of the area, it does look like it's kind of, you know, traditional farm with big fields kind of thing. So okay. Um. So, anyways, a couple days before March 31st, the father, Andre Gruber. No relation to my knowledge to Hans Gruber. Uh, <laughs> I was waiting for but, it. <laughs> <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Uh, yeah. Uh, he com- was talking to his neighbors and he said he had mentioned, he's noticed that it's it, that uh, it had been snowing and he saw that there was some footprints. There's a forest next to his farm. Uh, he, he noticed that there was some footprints coming out of the forest, coming up to his farmstead, and he couldn't find any leading back. So he just uh, saw a random set of footprints out of a forest that walked up to his house that didn't go anywhere. It didn't say like if they led into like an actual barn or anything. I couldn't figure that out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But he had also been noticing uh, noises in the attics, what sounded like footsteps. And then he also saw uh, unfamiliar newspapers on the farm itself. So I'm guessing just like discarded, you know, Issues of uh, the newspaper. It wasn't like he's getting like the Phoenix Times and he. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, they could have been from a different county or something as well. Right, right. If, I don't know what unfamiliar means. That's just what it says here. Mm-hmm. Not um, of his uh, county per se. 
Yeah, I, I don't know what they call those in Germany. So, so anyways, one other thing. Province is what they call that. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. One last thing to make it even weirder is several days before the murder, the house keys went missing. So apparently they were they were misplaced somewhere. <laughs> um, however, none of this was reported to police. So right, this is all speculation from what I guess the neighbors told the police afterwards. Now. Hang on real quick. You mentioned the maid. They had a new maid, right? Uh, kind of. Uh, so okay. she, it was her first day back. Uh, she had quit six months prior. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know where that's at in the article, so I'm just going off memory. Um, she said that the ho- house was haunted. Right. Um, so there's some sort of supernatural presence, I think, is maybe the mm-hmm. direct dialogue. Because she had been hearing strange noises as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, here it is. Uh, six months earlier. Yeah, every time I turn around, there's a metal voice and it says, yippee Kaye, motherfucker. <laughs> and he says, ho, 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 I have a machine gun now, too. <laughs> uh, no, it just says that she claimed she left because it was claimed to be haunted. Um, ah, okay. There's no, no explanation more than that. So, um, that's pretty much the setup. The... There's really not much more information about the actual murders. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just all speculation at this point, kind of like how you had your article. It was just like, okay, oh, we know what happened up until this point. Yeah, unexplained so, murder. So Friday the 31st of March, mm-hmm. um, we believe, we believe, not me. Um, no, I you were there. What the article. Like you saw it, <laughs> <Yeah>. Corey. <laughs> um, so what they think happened is somebody hid in the farmhouse and slowly uh, lured out the families one by one. Um, Everybody but the two-year-old daughter, the two-year-old son, and the maid. Um, Slowly led them out one by one and then hit them, I guess, with with a matlock, which is apparently some sort of pickaxe-type tool. Mm -hmm, Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, got the four of them out and then after they, uh, what seems to be pretty brutally murdered them in this farmhouse or in the farm itself, uh, went into the house and I, I don't know how to say this kindly, but yeah, went into the mother's room where the, the, the young two year old boy was sleeping mm-hmm. and killed the boy and then went into the maid's room and killed her as well. Sheesh. So, yeah, just uh, just a pretty pretty brutal imagery all around. Uh, unfortunately, right. um, so now here's where it gets kind of strange. Uh, that was Friday, like I said. Uh, nothing, nothing happened until Tuesday, the April fourth, was when they when they noticed that it was kind of strange because uh, the neighbors hadn't been seen, no activity on the farm. I guess they were kind of active. And then uh, the no- the postman also noticed that the nail hadn't been picked up for a couple of days. Yeah. On top of that, the, the young girl uh, didn't attend school on Monday. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess, I guess she had some sort of schooling on Saturday. I don't know if that's normal or not, but... In-school suspension probably for stealing all those neighboring counties' newspapers. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, so, yes, kind of weird, but the neighbors did notice that 
the animals had been fed still, mm-hmm. so they were healthy, and they did notice that the the fireplace had been used uh, a couple days over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the suspect, potential murderer, possibly lived in this house for a couple days. And there were also like dirty dishes to be discovered, like single serving dishes in the kitchen yeah, too. Yeah, and I was about to touch on that. Anyways, he he had lived there in the house and uh so a lot of theories of why he stayed in the house was that he was actually just robbing it. So he had the time everybody was dead, he had the time to actually go through the house pretty thoroughly and look for trinkets, valuables, whatever he was looking for. So uh more than 100 suspects were interviewed. Uh they were interviewed obviously as soon as the murders had happened and they realized that you know, the murders, uh, they had people they could suspect. This has been an open case forever, obviously, since it's never been solved. Right. But they uh, they had people looking into this. Oh, man, I can't even say this word. Uh, the mm, It means police academy. Uh, in 2007. Oh, you mean the uh, police in Fanschken school? Yeah, there you go. They had them look into it as recently as 2007, and they had identified people who potentially could be suspects, but they, I guess, let it go, and uh, they didn't want to, like, what is the wording they used? Uh, yeah, speak out, out of the respect. Dead. Yeah, speak of Some interesting things that had happened that they noticed afterwards, and also that could be related to it. First off, the, the husband, who I mentioned before, who died. Yeah, the uh, maid's husband. No, not the maid's husband. The the husband of oh, Victoria. Uh, Victoria. She he supposedly died at war, and he had some his comrades say they witnessed his death. But there's some speculation that he didn't die. That he came back, and I uh, guess I don't know why he would have murdered the family, but that's one theory. There's another theory that says that the daughter. Victoria was having an incestual relationship with her father and that Joseph, the young boy, uh, was actually Andre's son. So it was what you'd call that. Not a bastard. Um, You call that a grandpa daddy. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) Essentially, his daddy was his grandpa. Yeah. So uh, does that make him his own uncle? Yeah, I guess it does. <laughs> yeah, you know, whatever. Um, Who came first, the daddy or the uncle? Oh. Um, so another theory on the whole young son of Joseph, or the young son Joseph, is that it's mm-hmm. a uh, it's the son of a farmer a few doors down. I guess she was actually getting ready to sue him for money so that way she could get i guess i don't know if it'd be child support or whatever whatever she thought mm-hmm. she was owed but uh so there's a speculation that he uh murdered him so he wouldn't have to pay him right? and he he was one of the first people to show up and um be a part of the first search party too that found the bodies yeah yeah he was um and they said it was weird cuz like he almost it was almost like he just went straight to the bodies like oh here's one Oh, oh, here's one too. Oh, found another one. Yahtzee. Another interesting fact about this thing is that, um, not interesting in a good sense, but interesting in... Sicko. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, <laughs> young Cecilia. Uh, she was CC Junior. CC Junior. Yes, she was so terrified. Well, first off, she was she was attacked just like everybody else, but she apparently so showed signs that she did not die right away. So, oh. not good in that aspect. But apparently, in that happening, she was so traumatized, scared uh, that she actually. Just, I assume, grabbed her hair and just ripped it out in multiple spots. So, because she was been uh, dying, bleeding out, I, uh, I would assume on that. Um, yeah, she was apparently alive for several hours, and during the course of several hours, she she had ripped, ripped patches of hair out, which is not good. Yeah, her uh, her hands too. They said her hands had wounds um, from her gripping her fists so tightly that her nails dug into her palms and lacerated her palms as well. Wow, that's that's traumatic. Yeah. Yeah, cuz I mean it it begs the question of was she was she severely injured and left and because the killer thought she had died and she's pretty much just going mad because she's by herself or another argument was that she was alive and witnessed some of the family getting murdered and then he ended up finding her because she was hiding or something like that. So, yeah, lots of lots of different angles they kind of looked at this with. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh like I said, this is this is a. I find this this whole thing interesting just because there's so many little aspects, kind of like like your last case. There's so many theories on what what could have happened. Um, I yeah. I couldn't find any like solid concrete like theories about the whole supernatural thing, but there were some. So I don't want mm-hmm. I don't want to say anything on that because they're all loose. So it yeah, it's, it's hard to say anything. The last interesting thing I found about this is that they did the autopsies on the bodies and uh, mm-hmm. apparently they sent the skulls after they did the autopsies to a, clavo- a clairvoyant. Uh, yeah, clairvoyant. So they they could get some, I guess, readings. Is that right? Insight on what may have yeah. happened. They actually uh, ended up, got lost during the war, I believe, is what, during World War II. Because that was that was pretty common, wasn't it, Preston? Having like clairvoyance help you assist your investigations. Yeah, um, especially during that time period, because they, you know, they would have mediums and psychics. They would do seances, um, and, and so dur- during you know that that part of European history, um, even though it is a heavy heavy catholicism area mm-hmm. um they actually had those uh kind of backwater practices where they would you know do those sort of things so they would do table tippings um you know they would do the the seances they would you know use ouija boards and things like that right um so a, a lot of what we call occult practices now um actually in that time period in europe um those were just kind of like everyday things that you would do so Interesting. Okay. Uh, I will say I I haven't actually looked up these up. Um, you know I'm not the big, best researcher, so I did a lot of research. One of my main go tos was this Wikipedia article. But apparently, uh-huh. there's been this is just interesting. You know, hindsight things that like this has inspired several different things. Uh, one of them or two of them being movies. There's apparently a movie called The Hinterkaifeck. Uh, and then there's uh, another one that came out in 1981. And uh, I guess another movie by the same title that came out in 1991. So 
I'm actually oh. interested in looking those up. And there's apparently a couple books that are based off this one called The Murder House um, Ooh. by Pierre Mungin. Um, yeah, so uh, this this has clearly been interest to more than just me. So Yeah, it's inspired people. Yep, yep. In a good way or bad way, I don't know. But <laughs> right. definitely yeah. inspired people. Yeah, create creatively. Hopefully, they've been inspired. Yeah, that's a that's been one of those cases, like you said. Like it's interesting because of there's so many avenues. And granted, um, detective work and forensics back then were not near what they used to be, or what what they are today. Rather, you know, it's pretty easy to solve those kind of cases compared to how it used to be back then. Uh, back then, it was kind of just like a you just sat back and hoped somebody finally cracked and admitted to it. And otherwise, you're just kind of screwed and <laughs> going in circles. Yeah, we we take for granted the luxuries of technology that we have. You know, something as simple as just DNA analysis, right? And stuff like that, and right? So, yeah, it's crazy, crazy stuff. And I'm sure there's like, you know, the crazy thing about it is this is a a well documented in that that it happened and that we have some articles about it. But I'm sure that this is not mm-hmm. an uncommon thing to happen back before this so yeah there were lots of serial killings and um mass murders and stuff like that back then and just simply because you could especially on like farmsteads like that like it just it, it, people were murdered and weren't discovered for days weeks sometimes you know depending how far out you lived so but yeah that one is interesting in the fact that they were all murdered with the same kind of pickaxe tool and that it was almost, you know, systematically one by one, they were lured to the uh, the barn or the farmhouse or what have you. And I don't know, lots of interesting stuff. Yep. And uh, there is also a monument towards it if you want to go check it out. Uh, it, the, oh, really? the town was built, or the town, the, the farm was actually destroyed about a year after the murders. And a little bit south of it, I think is what it said, there was a little monument built to it. Huh. I'll be darn. I'm sure there's probably been a horror movie or two made based on the ghosts that haunt the house too. <laughs> Sounds like the eighth season of American Horror Story. Or I mean, German <laughs> Horror Story. Yeah, that's right. actually not a terrible idea. <laughs> I mean, it'd be more coherent than half the stuff they've made for that show. Hmm. Maybe they'll be inspired by our podcast. Hmm. Yeah, it's John McClane in the horror house. <laughs> uh, it's the prequel to uh, Die Hard. I'd watch that. Die Harden. <laughs> well, we usually finish things off, Corks, with uh, a little bit of what you've been watching. Have you been watching anything or reading anything good lately? Well, I mentioned that I'm reading those uh, those uh, Riley County uh, ghost story books. I just kind of yeah, they're my bathroom reader now, so. Um, so you're a, you're a bathroom reader, huh? Oh, when I forget my phone, you know. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. And, uh, as far as, uh, media goes, really, we just finished the Punisher. That's not really. What'd you uh, think? Oh, I, I, I thought it was amazing. Uh, I forget the actor's name, but John something, John. Berenthal. 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 Yeah, they, yeah. He's a, he's an amazing choice for that, that role. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can, uh, actually, I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not gonna say anything spoilery. 
but uh, it gets pretty brutal in the last couple episodes. And uh, like, there's some stuff in that where I had to yell at Amanda. I was like, hey, you need to like look away right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, that character in its nature is a very brutal and raw character. So, yeah. And they're, they're not a, you know, I was really worried with it being, uh, you know, kind of Disney now because, yeah, yeah. Um, that they were, they weren't going to go there and they, they went there. So, yeah. I think Netflix is a good choice for some of these characters because, you know, I, I love, I still put, the Thomas Jane Punisher movie that had John Travolta, I put that movie on a pedestal. I thought that was a pretty fantastic Marvel movie as far as like, you know, their primary round of Marvel movies with the original X-Men, the original Spider-Man stuff like that. It was pretty brutal, but not quite as brutal as the sequel because Punisher Warzone was even more kind of over the top. But I think Netflix was a good way to go because the amount of um, just violence they've instilled in some of the topics, I think it was a lot safer to go with Netflix versus, you know, a movie or um, cable TV. So that was a pretty solid choice, I think. Okay, yeah. You know that the Punisher that, uh, God, what was it called? It had Thomas Jane in it, but it was just like that little short. Dirty Laundry. The, yes. If you haven't watched that, you should do yourself a favor and go YouTube that. Yeah, so. that was that was kind of like a, a, I think he was, he funded that himself or did some crowdfunding because that was the problem is they made the first one and then whatever happened and Thomas Jane didn't come back to do Warzone. And he wanted to prove to, you know, basically like the media moguls, the movie moguls in Hollywood that he still had it and he can come back and be, you know, another Punisher and they could give a proper sequel to his original Punisher movie. And it was fun. It's just kind of like a a short sequel to his movie. I thought it was pretty good. All right, quick yeah. question. I didn't, didn't watch, uh, and this may be a conversation we should have, maybe not on this, but who, who was the bad guy in Warzone? In Warzone, it was a guy named Jigsaw. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he was one of uh, one of Punisher's main um, antagonists in the series. You know, every, everybody's kind of got their equal in a lot of Marvel stuff. You know, Marvel's curse we've discussed um, is, you know, Marvel movies, they always fight themselves. In a lot of cases, it's always a mirrored reflection of who they're fighting. So uh, Jigsaw was kind of a uh, military... I don't know who's a military, but he was a very cunning um, strategist and hand-to-hand combat yeah. and stuff was kind of like a, a a loose equal hand-to-hand with Punisher. And it's kind of, kind of always the big thorn <laughs> in his side where uh, we just finished episode – we got about halfway through episode 10 tonight. I didn't realize it was 13 episodes long. Yeah, it's it's for what you think that, that show is going to be. You think they're going to wrap it up pretty quickly. And then yeah. they have that like little weird like three episode arc halfway through the season that kind of slows mm-hmm. it down. So, well, it's it's a good pace because you don't need thirteen episodes of him just gutting people on screen. You know, there there's room for character development and new characters to be introduced and stuff like that. So they do a pretty good job of juggling the violence that we all crave with that character verse, like actual drama and actual you know real real world uh, problems. And they did something really good in it too, which when it happened because uh, oh man I don't like I said I don't want to spoil anything but this is I guess minor spoilers they they're looking for a detective and they want to get talk to her and uh, then like something else bad happens and they're like oh we need to focus on this and I'm like well you you just gonna shut off what you were doing and they're like and he 
throws away a line. He's like, well, if we go after her right now, like everybody's going to see it. So, yeah. And I was like, yeah, well, that's, that's yeah. Okay. Cause normally like in those shows you have like them divert their attention from, uh, from an episode or two. And you're like, yeah, the main thing's still going on. Why aren't you dealing with it? And they, yeah, they yeah. did pretty good. At, uh, yeah. They handle a lot of situations pretty well. Have uh, have either of you guys got into Mind Hunters yet? I've not. Um, I was. Uh, it was suggested to us that on A and E that we pick up the Eleven and start watching that. It's a, kind of one of those documentary on a a uh, a murder that was supposedly solved, but then when you go back and look at the evidence, it actually leads to somebody else. And uh, so we've been uh, watching that and uh, Jessica Jones, because I never actually watched that. Yeah, you're going know. backwards. <laughs> yeah, so I'm trying to go back through and finish all those. Okay, so. cool, cool. Yeah, that Jessica Jones is pretty fun. I'm excited to see what they do for her uh, second season. Man, that Jessica Jones might be my favorite of the Marvel series on Netflix, mm-hmm, just because of mm-hmm. the bad guy that they had for it. Yeah, Purple Man. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah, I don't want to. People probably haven't watched that yet. Preston hasn't finished it, so I don't want to ruin anything. But I get super okay. So like that was a good villain to me. These shows, especially like superhero Marvel and DC and stuff. Your villain is almost more important than your hero, in my opinion. And the problem is with the, I think with these Netflix Marvel shows is you've got to pick like low level secondary characters and, and tertiary characters to deal with because you don't want to encroach on the MCU's you know licenses. So they've got to pick like these second runner uh, heroes to deal with who are probably not going to be seen on their main MCU you know movie. Uh, story arcs and then you got to pick villains who you know they don't want to bring into the Marvel you know cinematic universe too so I think uh, Mr. Purple or Purple Man or whatever they call him uh, I think he was pretty solid villain yeah yeah I I, I, I don't I know it's probably not going to happen but I really wish there was some crossover with the MCU and the or the, the cinematic or whatever mm-hmm. it's called yeah yeah M- MC yeah cinematic universe um yeah, I wish there was a little bit of crossover because they have mentions and nods in the Netflix shows, but yeah, you know, you, the uh, event is what they keep calling uh, the first Avengers movie. Yeah, they just I wish they'd have some more direct crossover. Yeah, well, and they Mr. were Mister uh, Purple to. ties into uh, uh, the Dark Phoenix saga as well because there's a uh, Madeline Pryor has an encounter with Mister Purple once or twice. Oh so. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, and that was the thing about Marvel villains is every villain has their finger in a different pie, so to speak. You know, well, like they're all well. The the Kingpin, he's in like everything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, he was huge, very, very deep into uh, Daredevil and Spider Man and Punisher, all of those. So, mm-hmm. and you know, the original plan uh, right after the first Daredevil season was they were supposed to knock out all these seasons a lot quicker. And then whenever you had the Infinity War, you were supposed to have all of your defenders and Punisher were supposed to be in the Infinity War as well. Um, but I don't know what happened. A lot of people say it was just um, franchise issues and you know copyright issues. They couldn't just get the rights or whatever it was. But yeah, you were supposed to have them kind of handling more terrestrial problems during that big story arc. Like they're supposed to be handling things on Earth and you know maybe – 
showed up for that big battle too, but a lot of that stuff devolved over the years. Well, I think the big issue that I see, this is personal speculation, is that these Netflix series are so much more grounded. I mean, there is a supernatural element, in, not supernatural, but like, you know, the genetic yeah. thing with the Purple Man and all that stuff. There is, mm-hmm. it all seems so much more tied to Earth than... Um, yeah, the, terrestrial. Yeah, and uh, with that being part of it, with it being really gritty, and then the other part of it being that this, the movies themselves, they seem so much more family-friendly, and to like yeah. merge those together, I think, wouldn't be an uncomfortable thing to watch. <laughs> That's true. That is very true. They're pretty raw, especially Punisher, just you know, blowing heads up and stuff. Yeah. I think it's a good place to wrap it up. Well, I want to say thank you guys for inviting me to this shindig again. Yeah, dude. Thanks for coming on, Corn yeah. Dog. I, yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah, dude. Both times I've done it, or all the times I've done it. So. <laughs> in in one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back on again soon, man. Um, we'll see if we just still keep a rotating third chair for a while. And Well, it just hit me up. Most deaf, we will. Well, um, you got anything you want to plug as far as shows that people should be watching? Um, or or um, rather listening to podcasts? Well, I don't think they actually recorded it, but we have one more episode, I think, uh, until we hit mm-hmm. our 150th on uh, Pixelated yeah. Radio. Uh, I am I am talking to the guys and trying to figure out when we're going to record it. It was supposed to be this last Sunday, but uh, everything fell through for me, so... But, gotcha. um, yeah, and I, I don't know what exactly that's trying I don't want to say too much because I don't know what's all out there, but there is some changes that are going to happen to that show. Um, so just keep an eye out for that, that episode and we'll probably yeah. discuss it more on that. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you got any, you got any podcasts that you kind of lean to? What's, what's your go-to podcast? If you have a day off and like laundry to do, what do you, what are you listening to? Uh, besides us uh, there's about three things <laughs> I, I listen to a lot of video game podcasts the giant bombs kind of the one that i always go to that whole group of people it's a giant bomb giant beast but i listen to a lot of educational podcasts uh, uh the specifically the one that i always go to is stuff you should know just because mm-hmm. they hit a little bit of everything um actually that's where yeah. the fir- i heard first heard this topic that i talked about today is on that show oh, cool. so um, but the one that I want to mention, and you guys may have brought it up in the past, uh, just because it's kind of up the paranormal alley, is a show called Welcome to Night Vale. Um, there's about 115, oh. maybe maybe they're even up to 150 now. I I don't remember, but it's a it's a story driven podcast. So it okay. is it is a uh, it starts off real slow. So, um. It's about this DJ at a radio station in the, in this town called Nightvale, and just weird stuff happens in it, and he just kind of reports on it, and he's got a really soothing, just monotone voice that's really awesome to listen to. But then, like, oh, cool. the townspeople start developing characteristics, and you actually start to become familiar with them, and you actually learn about stuff going on in the town and become invested in it, and it's pretty fantastic. So is it a fiction piece then? Yeah, it's it's a totally fictional. Oh, cool! Fictional town. Uh, I don't I don't even know that it it takes place in a desert somewhere. So, uh huh. Yeah. Oh, so it's kind of like an audio book of sorts, then, really. In a way, yeah. It's just yeah. Um. So you have the main the main 
DJ uh, named uh, Cecil, and he uh, he does you know the daily uh, the daily episode. Um, it, I mean, it's rec- I think it's they do uh, every other week episodes, but it's it's oh, cool, yeah. it's uh it's listed like a, a daily radio show. You know, he talks on for an hour, and uh, mm-hmm. he does a couple things. Every episode has the weather, and then as soon as they go they go to the weather, it uh it's a song like just a new like indie band song that plays and it's not actually a weather report. Oh, cool, yeah. It's just, just a lot of really weird stuff. That's like super charming. And you know, you, you, you have rival towns that you hate because you just do. <laughs> and You get in, in, in crow or uh, enveloped in the story. Yeah, and it, it, Like I said, it, it's, it's going to take you, I don't know, 10 or so episodes before you actually start like figuring out like, okay, this is the rhythm of these episodes. And I, I'm starting to learn wow. who, who is who, but I would highly recommend it to anybody who likes just stories about weird stuff. Nice. Yeah. Get that a listen to. Yeah. Hell yeah. Heck yeah. And, um, Mark is still doing his show, right? Pixelated sausage. As far as I know. Heck yeah. Yeah. Give that a go. That's kind of our, our sister podcast. Um, speaking of other podcasts, we mentioned John Barenthal. Check out, um, the Nerdist interview with Chris Hartwick when he interviews John Barenthal about uh, his role as the Punisher and Walking Dead and stuff. He's a he's a fun man to listen to. Just you know, he kind of came from hard knocks, kind of in a way, like always looking for trouble and stuff like that. And then talks about his his rough upbringing of street fights into becoming an actor is kind of cool. Well, and if uh, if you've got a beard or want to grow a beard or anything to do with beards go check out big dobs he has some pretty fantastic beard products oils and he has combs that kind of rotate through there once in a while and balms and soap and anything you need to get your uh, your man mane nice and pretty so go check him out and if you do use promotional code pxlpara and receive 20% off your entire purchase. A little something special he does for us, for you. So check him out. That's it for episode 46. We are we are coming up close to the, the milestone of episode number 50. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and have a wonderful day. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown, tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. You have two ways. One, email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we have that set up too. Dial us at 707-523-4263. Again, that's 707-523-4263. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Okay, give me. We we always do a three, two, one, and then you guys say pop. So we'll go three, two, one, pop, pop. Okay. What? <laughs> so did you say it? <laughs> <laughs>
No. <laughs> I did too. Yeah. I'm going to count down three, two, one, and then I'll say pop. And then, and when I get to three, two, one, okay, try this. I'm going to say three, two, one, pop. And when I get down to the one, everybody says pop. Okay. I get it. Get it. Okay. You sure? Because last time you didn't have the three, it. Three, two, one, pop. Yes. Well, okay. I, I thought you were giving us the examples in. <laughs> I know you're actually... Why would I give you two examples? You only give me one. <laughs>